Hello and welcome to Impact Investment, Intentionality and Innovation. My name is Kieran John, a lawyer passionate about impact and innovation. In this series, we sit down with purpose-driven leaders, impact investors and entrepreneurs that turn up the volume to 11 to tackle the world's most pressing issues. We explore what drives these positive disruptors and how these trailblazers have taken innovative approaches to intentionally make a positive impact. Today, I'm delighted to speak with Mark Mann. Mark, who's the founder of Markman OU and the co-founder of DivineOx, is an experienced venture and ecosystem builder specialising in social innovation and brand building strategies. Mark started his career as a nanotechnology researcher before moving to the BBC to research and develop new technology, trying everything from tracking Tom Daly's swim shorts to bringing live audio from the terraces to the ears of radio listeners. Mark has also worked at Oxford University Innovation, supporting academics to commercialise new tech, as well as spearheading the creation of Oxford University's social venture spin-ups. During our conversation, Mark shares insights gleaned from his work in world-renowned institutions and explains how Divinox is looking to tackle greenwashing through impact reporting. It's going to be an interesting conversation, so let's get started. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Well, really looking forward to talking to you today. And um, if it's right for you, I want to talk a bit, perhaps a bit about your background, your current focus and your views on the kind of wider ecosystem for social venture spin-outs. But, but first, I thought it might be fun to start with some quick fire questions. If that sounds good? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Great. So question number one, what are you most proud of, Mark? Ooh, um, I think the one is the first social venture that I spun out of Oxford, actually. Um, it's a company called Sophia, which is now spinning out another company of itself called Wise Responder. And, uh, and it, I've got high hopes for it to make a big impact on the world, a big, good, positive impact on the world. Amazing. Spin out and a spin out. It's always, always a good yeah, yeah. way to go. <laughs> so we're looking forward to hearing a bit more about that later when we, we talk about your experience at Oxford University Innovation. For my second question who's your inspiration and why uh so this this one is uh a bit of a curveball this one so i'm a i'm a golfer well i'll try to i haven't played for about two or three months because the weather's been so horrible but my my inspiration is sevi balasteros and the reason is is because he was he was very good very talented he practiced i learned to play golf on the beach but what he used to do was able to try and make things happen where other people wouldn't um would sort of give up and and so the like massive recovery shots and I mean and very inspirational very charismatic and uh yeah I always wanted to be him nice. <laughs> did, uh, did you ever get a chance to see him play live no no I, ne- I never did and you know I obviously he died about 12 years ago mm. now but uh yeah I would have loved to have seen him doing his stuff um and by the time I had the, the means to sort of go around and watch golf tournaments his uh, glory days were behind him unfortunately mm. but uh, yeah well maybe maybe your glory days ahead of you with golf you never know mark <laughs> they're not i can assure you they're not <laughs> well for my third question i'd be interested to know whether you've ever experienced what some people call imposter syndrome strangely enough so this is the thing i've always had a job up until very recently where i've been working in the background trying to convince people to do things so a bit of a of organ grinder or a bit of a sort of person behind the scenes so I wasn't really the person who was on the stage who you know so I, I there wasn't much imposting to, to be done if you know what I mean so not really but there's um 
sometimes you know sometimes you get up on the i have as i have done recently in the, in the last couple of years is getting up on the stage so how on earth did i get here um and you know <laughs> people listening to me am I, am I really saying things which are worthwhile but yeah so i i've had that a bit more recently how do you kind of deal with that i just power on i mean i i, I don't see any reason to stop i mean my once I get into a situation where I'm feeling a bit un- uncertain of myself, I don't know. I just feel like the best thing is just to do is just to power on. And, and well, you're here now, so you might as well do it. Um, and if it ends up being a complete disaster, well, make your excuses and get out as quickly as possible, mm. which you've had to do occasionally. Um, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good approach from my perspective. So for my fourth question, what's your guilty pleasure? Pommel. It's a wonderful drink from um, the north of France, which is a mixture between brandy and apple juice. It's uh, I discovered it um, four years ago, just before the pandemic, on my last holiday before the pandemic, and I think it's absolutely gorgeous. I, I, wow. I drink far too much of it. Well, I guess during the pandemic, that might have come in quite handy, I imagine. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really quite helpful sometimes. Nice, I'll have to check that out. Um, <laughs> my penultimate question, do you have a favourite app on your phone? No. I don't like having to use the mobile phone at all, to be honest. I can see how it's um, it's really useful and, and amazing what you can do with it. I suppose I use Instagram quite a lot just to escape from what I'm doing because I follow lots of people who I've got nothing to do with what I, uh, I do my work in. Um, uh, so Instagram would be the one, but uh, yeah. Who's, who's the most random person you follow then on Instagram out of interest? That wasn't on the list of questions. <laughs> that's a that's a good question. Um, uh, if you want, Mark. I don't know. No, 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 it's, um, I, no. You're gonna have to. Come, I'll come back yeah, to that one. Cool. Yeah. Hey, for my final question, Mark, how do you relax? Uh, drinking um, and <laughs> I'm trying to play golf um, and reading um, or going out and killing something in my garden. Um, okay. and actually, that's the most. Ultimately, killing things in the garden is is the thing that gives me the most pleasure. Is it in what way are you doing this that are interesting? <laughs> is it? I mean, it's it's good just to take any tension out um, that you might have, yeah. any stress, um, yeah. by just you know trying to dig a tree root out or you know um, chop a hedge down or whatever it is that uh, my wife asks me to do. I, I don't do it of my own volition. I ask my wife, what, mm. which one do you want killing today? Well, the reason my arse has kind of had a, this image of you and your bare hands tackling a pigeon or something like that, so I'm glad it's a... It's no, a no, no, it's, no, it's, it's bushes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. It's given us a real insight into, uh, into a bit about you, Mark. Thanks for that. And you mentioned a bit right. earlier about your golfing interests and had a bit of a look on, online before this call. And I, I believe you were the captain of the university golf team at one point. Um, ah, I was. Yeah, to, to be clear, I was the captain of the university third golf team. So I was, you know, there, there were two, two, two above me. But yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Well, that the reason why I said that is kind of like a, obviously a really swift transition into a bit of your background. And I know that you achieved a PhD in nanotechnology at university. Um, for us laymen, what is nanotechnology, and what interests you about this branch of science and engineering? Well, nanotechnology is about trying to engineer things with the very small and trying to get them to do stuff. And it's about characterizing the properties of the materials that you're trying to make things out of. And if you do make something out of them, trying to work out whether they work or not by putting measurements on them and 
So I, I, my background was in electrical engineering. And so that's the bit of technology that I was doing. Um, but there was also, it was, when you get that small, you find that you're at the boundary between all sorts of different sciences. So there was plenty of chemical engineering in, in there as well that I was doing. Um, physics was, was played a big part as well. And, uh, and it was good fun because I was doing all sorts of different techniques and discovering all sorts of great things. Um, and dare I say it was doing a PhD was the first thing at Cambridge that I did, which I felt like it was reasonably good at. Um, when I was doing my exams, I was sort of in the middle of the pack, um, but they sort of took me on because I think they could see that actually when they, they put a set of tweezers in my hand, um, I was all right. Uh, answering exam questions was pretty naff out, but actually uh, actually doing the experimental work, they, they saw I had a bit of a talent for. So it's more the practical side, the kind of variety, the kind of yeah. problem solving elements to it. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I guess obviously looking ahead, jumping ahead a bit to your you know, current work and your work at Oxford University Innovation, which involves a lot of interaction with academics, kind of helping them to spin out their their social ventures. Do you think it really helps, you know, because you've got that research background, you can kind of relate to the academics and you kind of know what it's like to be in their shoes effectively? Yeah, yeah they don't. Uh, strangely enough, I was writing a, a blog post on this uh, um, yesterday, in fact, which is going to be published soon. Um, and it... I will. It, the discussions that we're having in the UK around equity and commercialization in general at the moment, it just made me think back to my, my academic days and all the things that I was trying to balance in the sort of the 55 to 60 hours a week I was working. Um, and, and did I have much time for commercialization? The answer was not very much, and it wasn't really a priority for me. Um, so yeah, it does. It and when I was talking to academics, they did they, they'd look into my background in, in the way that you looked into my background, and they'd say, "Oh yeah, you know, oh I can talk to him." Yeah, and it did make a difference. Yeah, imagine um, it's kind of that seal of approval, isn't it? In some ways, you've you come from mm-hmm. some perspective to them. You know, you know what it's like to have a day in their shoes. Obviously, you talked about the commercialization. Did was there like an avenue to commercialize your research at that point? And if so, if so, was there a reason why you didn't go down that that route? No, I did. I did commercialize my research. I when I was doing my PhD, um, or just before I did my PhD, I had this one year between me phys- finishing my physics degree and then joining the engineering department as a PhD student. I worked as a research assistant, um, and I was building equipment, and I patented. Uh, uh, a piece of equipment that was I actually used to do my PhD for me, which was um, it was I developed a mechanism for growing a, a carbon nanotube on top of a very very sharp tip without it blowing up, which is actually quite difficult to do given the chemical process that was involved, lots of high fields and things like that, and I'd managed to sort of manipulate the field so that didn't happen. And sort of registered a pattern, and um, this was in the early days of Cambridge Enterprise. Uh, they just stopped being, uh, although I mean, it's still there, Cambridge University Technical Services, and they'd rebranded as uh, Cambridge Enterprise. And uh, were, it was an interesting process. Yeah. And uh, in the end, I bought the patent off the university and sold it myself. So that's what got me into it. That's what got me into this mess in the first place, I think, because I put I put that on my um, applications for, mm. for the BBC and, and, and Oxford, and they seemed to like that. 
Yeah, well, you, <laughs> it's obviously worked out because you are where you are today. Yeah. But you, yeah, yeah, yeah. you mentioned your your application or your work in the BBC, and I understand that you did sort of work in the research, researching, developing new technology. What was thinking behind that that kind of move to the BBC, moving away from academia, and you know what did the like day to day role involve? <laughs> well, what was the thinking? I have to confess there wasn't an awful lot of thinking went on. Um, it was I'd been in Cambridge for eleven years at that point and I'd had enough. And I uh, I thought, well, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Because I felt like I'd gone down a cul-de-sac. I'd done research into carbon nanotubes, which nobody seemed to care very much for. And I tried to move out sideways in, in, in my research field and I wasn't particularly enjoying it. I found myself st- shouting at the students. So I thought I was pretty desperate, actually. Mm. And so I joined. Um, I, I, the only thing I could cling to was that when I was growing up, I used to say to my mum and my dad that the, where I wanted to work was the BBC. So I applied. I, l- I looked at the jobs in the BBC. You could see we, things I was vaguely qualified for. Uh, and this was basically the only department, the only entry place, the entry point that I think I prob- probably had. And beyond that, um, there wasn't much of a plan. Um, and then, so I did a traineeship there. I, I went right back in at the bottom again, as it were. And it was a two-year traineeship where they gave me ex- um, exposure to three different areas of the research business. And uh, I did uh, visual processing. I did music information retrieval, so audio processing, um, and machine learning. And I also did apps and mm. um, phone technology and things like that. And I eventually focused on image processing. Mm. And did you, you know, the BBC obviously has some sort of conceived innovations, you know, looking back in history, colour TV, CFAX. I, yeah. I enjoy looking at football scores and CFAX, showing my age a bit. Yeah, and yeah. obviously you got, you got the iPlayer and stuff like that now. Did you, did you find yeah. it to be an institution where, like, they wanted to back your innovation and wanted to, you know, let you try mm. out new things and test things? Or was it a bit more stifled? Well, it, no, it, well, it was written into the into the BBC's constitution that they ha- they were mandated to do this, um, and so the the whole uh, research and development division um, was uh, the, was mandated to push technology in the industry on. Um, and you, you often find that the, the the advances in broadcasting that you see normally take place either at the BBC or in conjunction with NHK in Japan. So it was right at the forefront of like the new broadcasting technologies. So they would set, they would do research to work out how to set the new standards when new formats came out, you know, like new video encoding, like MPEG mm. and, and things like that, and, and broadcasting standards, audio, all those sorts of things. And they had a, quite a political role in the industry to play in order to make sure that Certain organisations didn't get carried away with themselves and uh, and um, and mandate that they we had to give them vast quantities of money in order to uh, broadcast have the rights to broadcast anything. So there was a there was a lot there, and there was also the um, the technology that that was there to improve experiences within the B, uh, like with the BBC. And so a lot of what they had to do was to interact directly with the content creators, the editors, the producers, and um, and it, that was what I did for the last year I was at the BBC. So I moved over from uh, developing the technology itself into actually trying to bridge that gap between mm. what, the, what the engineers were developing and actually trying to get it rolled out um, and in front of audiences mm. as a technology transfer manager. Did that sort of experience of you know bridging the gap, did that help you when you moved on to Oxford University to work at Oxford University Innovation. Um, yeah. Interested to know a bit more about, you know, 
or to perhaps tell us what OUI is and you know your role at the time mm. within the OUI and how yeah. you helped out various exciting social ventures. Yeah, so it's an interesting one. So the yeah, it did it really did help. It was a good training. I was looking after a patent portfolio at the BBC there, um, and uh, one of the choices I made is that I wanted to work somewhere which was closer to home. I was commuting into London from just north of Oxford at the time, and then I saw this job come up at uh, Oxford University in um, for engineering, physics, and software commercialization. I thought. Yeah, I could do that. Yeah, that's that's all right. I think that I had all of the background, in, the necessary background, in fact. So um, I applied for the job and I got it at Oxford University Innovation. It was called ISIS at the time when I joined. Um, obviously, a bit of a branding issue given what was going on in Iraq at the time. Um, and the that wasn't the reason that they did it, though. That's 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 the official line. The the job was essentially to take all the uh, intellectual property that the um, university was generating through its research and then to try to push it out into the wide world and it came and I joined around about the same time just a few months after a new venture fund called Oxford Sciences Innovation started its work in Oxford so I I, you know, I was there right at the very beginning of the, all the rules changing as it were. I think it must be a really exciting time to land at that, at that point. It was yes because you, you had these um um, new people in town who had an awful lot of money and were very much looking to spend it. Um, when I was at the BBC, I focused very much on licensing. And what I learned at Oxford was, certainly in the first few years I was there, was about spin-outs and, and commercialisation. And I did an awful lot of spin-outs whilst I was at Oxford, more than I was expecting to do. And uh, the, the first few I did were pure technology spin-outs, which, um, um, so learning about how to negotiate you know, putting teams together and then working out what they're going to do and then helping them negotiate with investors mm. and raising the capital and setting them on their way. And that mm. was that was that was grateful. Yeah. I can imagine you talked a bit earlier about Sophia, the first um social venture you helped help spin out of Oxford. Um, are there any particular social ventures you want to spotlight and part of our Well yeah, I, mean, it's, it's, I suppose it's worth sort of talking about, you know, moving into how we moved into social ventures was mm. because the before I do that, which is the the reason I moved into social ventures was uh, literally six months after after I started, my boss said to me, um, "So you used to work for the BBC and they do English and history and stuff. Well, we think you'd be really good at starting a portfolio in humanities and social sciences." Um, and then I told them, "Well, you do know what I did at the BBC," and they said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, but it doesn't matter. Go and do it anyway." So I did it, um, and I started. Developing a portfolio of stuff and seeing that the innovations were not largely technology based, they were more methodology based, human faced, you know, um, solving social problems. And it seemed to be that the best mechanism to deliver these was through social ventures. And at the same time, I was trying to work out how do you do any ventures at all in humanities and social sciences? No, no, tech, you know, the investors around Oxford at the time were very much focused on technology, I think, to, to a certain extent they still are um how do you do services based spin outs from universities and 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 more importantly the ones that were interacting with people the ethics were really strong um, um and the way in which they wanted to provide their insights and their innovations to people they wanted to make sure it didn't fall into the wrong hands or it was abused and not used for what they were intending it to do and so social ventures, again, seem to be the best way of doing that because you had that within the 
Articles of Association or the Constitution, wherever you, you start one, you have that protected purpose and you can only use things for, for, for certain ends. And so Sophia was my first one. Um, I'm still on the board of it now. Um, I'm, I've got a board meeting in a couple of weeks, which I'm looking forward to. Um, the, uh, that came out of international development. They were, they were working on poverty measurement and poverty is caused by all sorts of different um, dimensions. So it's not just about how much money you've got, but your access to education, your, your, your rights, all those sorts, all sorts of dimensions come into play. And they came up with a mechanism by essentially creating a, a fingerprint, uh, a, an overall picture for a, a particular country to say these are the main factors which cause poverty in your country. And obviously it varies depending on, on what state the country's in. Um, and when they were doing that work in Costa Rica, they said, you know what, we're the biggest bank. You've measured the country. Can you now measure the bank to see if we've got poverty in our bank? And they found that the poverty went all the way up to, to middle management, much to their surprise. They created, they said, well, you, you can change that by uh, creating a, a hardship fund, which is what they did. So the, the directors took a pay cut, they created a hardship fund. And then people who were having a hard time had access to that. They were able to, you know, and they were using it primarily to buy their own house, you know, put the deposit down on buying a new house. Um, and I remember I was sitting in a board meeting. I was uh, I was a meeting in Vienna at the time, and I was joining remotely. Um, and they said that the uh, as a consequence of this intervention in this bank in Costa Rica, 27 families have now been able to buy their own houses where they wouldn't have been able to before. Essentially, what you and it does a great moment where you can see that you actually some real impact. And then you can see that you've essentially got an accreditation mechanism where you, as you know, the, when you've got these mechanisms for bringing people out of poverty, then your, your poverty score goes down or your anti-poverty score goes up. And, and that's essentially what the company does now. And in doing all that work, it's gathered an awful lot of data. And that is now being commercialized through this spin out of a spin out called Wise Responder is using that, that data to, for financial institutions such as banks to create social bonds so evidence-based social bonds which can the you know so you can actually demonstrate what impact you can have by financing things in a particular way and the the it, the potential of unlocking you know billions of dollars of investment mm. to, to to alleviate poverty is is enormous and so i can't wait to see where that one goes but we to answer your question on what other stuff has there been there's been all sorts. There's been, you know, the it, it covers everything from education. Um, we um, we had one on creative creativity, which was was, was really good fun. Um, but there also once we, we though we started in humanities and social sciences, the scientists noticed what we were doing and they said we want some too. And so we um, during the pandemic we we did a ventilator company called Oxvent and we did a um, a social venture in um, COVID diagnostics detection, um, uh, Oxed, and that that was the first social venture that we sold. Um, and so there was, uh, it, it covered the broad, by the time I left, um, just over a year ago, the innovations were coming from all over the university that we were commercializing mm. in social ventures. So yeah, essentially you talked about Sophia and you talked about the kind of, you know, you can measure how many people are out of poverty from this venture, but you also on the flip side, you got Oxed, which, you know, had a big exit, made lots of money. Is it, 
is it kind of weighed up? Are they kind of the impact the same thing in a university context or is one, you know, one sees more successful than the other because there's a financial metric to that one? I don't know how the university values one over the other because I don't think the university has ever sat around and worked out what it wants to focus on because the, and what it values most, you know, Oxford is a very big institution and it's very difficult to agree on some on a on a very cre- clear strategy to say this is what we focus on more than anything else. It wants to do an awful lot of things. And so the ones that make a lot of money are great and the ones that make an awful lot of impact are great as well. Some other universities have got a very clear sort of mission and purpose that they want to deliver and they have a strategy on how they're going to do that. Much easier to do if, if you're smaller than Oxford, I, I would say. Yes, it was, um, I remember... Uh, being in a meeting once a, f- a few a couple of years before I left and said, so what, 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 what is it that you would like us to focus on? We want you to focus on, on money and impact. <laughs> so, yeah, the bit, bit of a way to go there, I think. Mm. I guess in some ways it's kind of taking maybe like an impact investment kind of approach. It's kind of a lockstep. It's kind of having those social and environmental returns alongside the financial returns that, you know, balance it. Obviously, in the university context, it might be slightly different because it's a charity and it's obviously charitable purposes. Well, up, but I think I think the two are linked. You see, because if you are going mm. to get scale of impact, I mean, the, the the question is is the yes, you can do make make something. In order for something to have a big impact, a lot of people are going to have to be involved, um, and for that, you need an awful lot of money. So the question is, mm. how much of the university, how much does the university get of that? That's the fundamental question. I think. Probably the answer is that the university doesn't necessarily care so much how much it gets. It it does want to be able to say, look at the overall socioeconomic impact that we have actually made with this. Um, And I think that's probably where they they would be most comfortable. So not necessarily that they have to get the money for themselves. But for instance, if Wise Responder is able to unlock lots of financial institutions' money to create a lot of social bonds which are worth billions of dollars. That's a massive impact, right? And that's an awful lot of money being spent because of an innovation from Oxford, which is probably where I think it's it, it really wants to make its impact. Exciting. Well, um, watch out. Watch out for that, that venture and um, see where that goes in the thing. Going back to the kind of you know academics side of things, they can have various what we like to call avenues to impact you know you can they can teach they can publish their work you license their ip to another existing company or as you kind of support them to do commercialize the ip through um a social venture effectively um often an academic is perhaps perceived as successful if they've been you know lots of articles published they've maybe got a book deal they've been on tv do you think the narrative has now changed in academia where being a founder is now considered to be a viable option alongside you know, a viable option for an ambitious founder who wants to have a positive impact. Do you think that's with it on the? If we're using any uh, golf analogies, is that on par with uh, with being a published or published uh, academic? Uh, there's an awful lot of chaos in the academic system at the moment because they uh, academics are being pushed and pulled in all sorts of different directions. I think the the new academic is the ones that are coming up through the system now. The the more diverse their impact is, the better they're likely to be because of the research excellence framework, the knowledge exchange framework, um, the university is able to essentially get more research funding if it is able to demonstrate impact outside of the university. And I think there is more, certainly a greater willingness from the administrations of the universities to give academics the 
flexibility to explore some of those things. But where the issue comes is that academics are often overstretched already and actually being able to set aside the time to do the commercialization is probably the biggest barrier to do it. And I don't think using the word commercialization doesn't in the in the round doesn't normally work with academics. Um, mm. Maximizing or optimizing impacts from your ideas and seeing them grow and using commercialization as a tool to do that is 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 the way in which you have to take the order of the conversation normally. I often find that I don't necessarily need to explain what a social enterprise is or a social venture is to an academic. They intuitively know what it is. Say, I know what it is. And they explain it to you and they actually do know what it is. Mm. Um, and and they, it's, it's this construct that they feel very comfortable with and much more than, uh, dare I say, a mainstream spin out with uh, mm. having to deal with investors, even though you, have to do, you might have to do that with social investors as well. Um, they see... It's a smaller barrier to get them to do it. Yeah, you, earlier you talked about the kind of pressure on the academic, and I guess if you're you're spinning out an entity, you've got a bit of a choice. You could, you know, perhaps take the leap and do this full time and dedicate everything to, to the company, or you might, you know, carry on your academic roles and do it a bit part time. Do you think the the social venture or the spin out generally will be successful if the academic founder doesn't take that leap? Because I'm just thinking about it in perhaps an investor context. If you got if you, you know, if you are a social venture looking for investment. Is the investor going to think, look, um, why should I take a bet on this this venture if the founder's not going to take take that you know, bet themselves by doing this full time and leaving what can be considered quite a you know cushy, perhaps cushy job as an academic? Is that is that a fair a, a fair view? I think that people who are in have worked with academics and academia and have had experience of doing that is that they generally find that an academic uh, has most to offer a a company by actually staying in the university uh, and, and 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 working for it occasionally and providing its advice and guidance um, either through board meetings or maybe spending a little time in the in the research lab and guiding the staff there it's where the, it, the 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 key thing that universities have got to be comfortable with is what the connection between the spin-out company and the research lab is going to be because if that's a strong relationship and that you essentially have that pipeline going from the from the research group where the uip just essentially goes into the spin-out um, mm. that is a very good uh, model to invest into actually because you're getting the best of both worlds there where you're de-risking it because, well, if this particular idea isn't necessarily going to work, you've got the capacity within the research group to get some more stuff done and into the company and and help that um, technology push on and grow. So um, the best thing to do is to build a team around the, that central academic, um, generally. Sometimes the academic may want to work. Uh, the academic is an academic because they saw joining a university at that time was the best way of pushing on their agenda um and you know like some of the people i've seen in the poverty side of this they're, they're not necessarily natural academics and actually it's all about solving the world's poverty um and the it's you have to you have to look at essentially what the primary motivators are of of, of an individual involved and what it is that where their passion lies and there are various models and ways that you can, and structures that you can build around the idea and the people involved in creating that idea to get the maximum benefit. 
for sure. Yeah, there's lots of variety you can have. And mm. as you said, it's, I guess it's having that, that association in the university as well for kind of like a branding element as well. It offers that kind of kudos mm. and perhaps on the, the practical side on the ground, the kind of access to labs is going you know, to be extortionally expensive for a startup anyway. And if you've got that access to a university lab, if it is a tech one, that would be invaluable to the It venture. does. And the university brand is, is strong. And this is not just like the big ones, it's the small ones mm. as well. Is that if you're an academic, you have to go to conferences and you have to go and defend your work. I mean, my God, I used mm. to go... Uh, I remember a particular conference in career I was at, and I was absolutely slaughtered. You know, there, there was a particularly aggressive academic from Portugal who was um, was laying into my work, and it was really quite a high-pressure environment. And what you have, therefore, is stuff that is published and gets uh, and, and is validated by the rest of the research field by your competitors, and they allow it out. If it's not good enough, they don't let you publish it. And so you know... Mm that if you've gone through um, research, university research, you've gone through a rigorous process, and you know that if you claim that thing, this thing is going to work, it will work. Mm. Yeah, real seal of approval. And um, obviously, mm. sorry to hear you had that, 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 that confrontation oh. with Portuguese. I mean, I mean, yeah, it, 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess you get that sometimes, don't you? But um, yep. that's a really interesting kind of insight into your, your background at, at UI. But it'd be really interesting now to talk about a bit about what you're doing now. I know yep. you're the founder of, of Mark Man OU and also the co-founder of Tvarnox. It'd be really good to know a bit more about those ventures and what you're up to with each of them. Sure, yeah. So Mark Man OU is, uh, was founded in Estonia because I became an e-resident after Brexit and I wanted to have a footprint within the EU. Um, uh, so I've got a company in Estonia. Uh, I haven't visited Estonia yet, but I am going next month for the first time, which I'm very much looking forward to. I've spent an awful lot of time with the Estonians, like the Estonian embassy, the great fun, love them to pieces. Um, and I can't wait to meet them in person over there on their home patch. Um, and I've also got a company in the UK, which is essentially providing strategic innovation services to university, which takes the form of training and development for professionals, but also bringing academics and, and uh, knowledge transfer professionals together to uh, solve problems together in their new institution. What I'm trying to do is to try and give my insights and, and all the, the, the work has been focused on humanities, social sciences and social venture commercialization in universities, essentially trying to get other universities to um, save a bit of time uh, and learn from my mistakes um, that I made at Oxford and hopefully get some of their really good ideas out into the um, uh, in, into the world as friction-free and uh, as possible with the best possible chance of success. So I've got a few a few products and interventions there which I um, which I'm providing across the UK and Europe at the moment, and also Divine Ox, which is looking at the next bit, which is okay. So you've done all of this work. What impact has it had? Uh, and being able to capture the impact that you've done, and we. Our mantra there is to look at the SMEs because when you see these impact reports from uh, organisations, they're always big organisations, but what the, the big thing that's missing is the data from their supply chains. And if you look at your big corporates, 50% um, of the, their supply chain are SMEs and 50% of the world economy is, is SMEs and none of them are really recording their data whatsoever and so that's a big black hole in the economy and it's one that we're trying to fill with um, pragmatic impact capture um, like you making use of the data that SMEs already have and convert it in, mm -hmm. converting it into social value data and sustainability data. That's really really interesting um, 
product and you're working at the moment is that is the plan to have any kind of like certification of that data kind of process is it the idea that divinox is kind of the kind of independent body which is saying that this this data is is, is good data effectively and other stakeholders can rely on that is that the kind of the gap in the market effectively it, it is it's uh, so it, it needs to be underpinned by um the the actual methodology by which you convert fundamental data into um, social value de- data needs to be open source. People need to see how you're converting that data mm-hmm. from in, in, into new metrics. But that that methodology needs to be underpinned by academic research. And so the fundamental is that we we are working with universities to make sure that the research is undertaken to make sure that the numbers that we're coming up with make sense, can be verified, and and and, and so on. So that's that's the strategy of how it is. Mm-hmm. And so. So essentially, the the, key, the 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 keeper of the keys is the independent body, which is the which is underpinned by university research, and then we we have a platform eventually, which is going to be able to cap, capture that data, and uh, because it's either gone through an accounting system or an HR system, it's already validated, and so it's just a, mm. a question of making um, the use of the information that that companies already have and then if there's anything else that needs to be added adding that on top mm. if, if you let me allow me to be play devil's advocate yeah slightly with this if i was if i was a founder we know we know how you know busy founders are lots of stuff juggling especially if you're an academic founder as well you've got all the academic side of things to, to keep uh, keep the plate spinning what's the kind of you know firstly why should they care about the kind of measuring and reporting their impact and secondly is there like a an obvious kind of return on investment if they kind of engage Divinox to help them measure and kind of quantify that impact they're having. Well, I, I so the the first few um, I, I'm not saying that academics would be um, uh, necessarily interested in in measuring their own impact. And there are lots of academics who do research into the field of impact, and those are the ones that I wanted mm. to work with. Um, the space is burgeoning at the moment because. The, of the new legislation which is coming in, the, the, the first and foremost of, of which is in Germany at the moment, which is, I, I, now forgive me, I have been learning on, uh, German on Duolingo or topping up my German on Duolingo, but I can't pronounce this one because the, the word is about that long. Um, but it's essentially, it's um, being able to capture impact through the supply chain and then it, how, how now it is mandated and it has been since the 1st of January, 2023. Well, there's no, there's no effective technical solution for that in Germany at the moment. Um, and uh, uh, and with increased regulation, um, there is going to be an increased market for being able to capture this sort of thing. But at the same time, nobody is going to want to be to create a system where everybody's sitting in front of a computer, computer putting data, data in there, which doesn't add any value. Um, and it always makes sense to focus on the things that you already have to hand and it's very and mm. the low hanging fruit first which is it doesn't what seem to be what people are doing at the moment mm. well for my sake that sounds really interesting and um yeah we'll include links to divine ox in our show notes for anyone who wants to oh, read thank you. what you're yeah, doing yeah, and, and yeah. get in touch with uh, support with that so yeah. um you talked to me about legislation and i've seen recently the uk government is beginning an independent review to university spin outs kind of looking at mm-hmm. the distribution of performance across universities to identify best practice um if you had a crystal ball, what do you reckon that that review will conclude and call for? Uh, it'll conclude absolutely nothing. Um, the, 
<laughs> we will, these things never do. I'm sorry. I mean, the, the, the situation that we are in the moment, we're 18 months from a general election. Um, you know, are they going to be mandate a, a, a complete rewrite of the um, university spin-out system six months before a general election? They're not. They're not going to do it, right? Mm. I, don't, I just don't think the political time is left to do it. The interesting thing is, is that the Labour Party has also done undertaken a similar review at the same time, and I happen to have been involved in that one. Um, and the um, uh, and I think the general direction there is a general direction in in which the 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 political parties seem to feel that there is friction in in creating the creation of spinouts and 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 realizing the value from the IP that universities are creating. Um, and that they are wanting to get uh, just to speed things up a bit. Um, and I suppose what the review will do, it might well identify some of the uh, places where things get blocked and slowed down and stopped. Uh, and then there's another question that people have to answer, which is, is it actually worth blocking it and stopping it? And what are the reasons that cause it? But I think if they treat it, if they if they if they publish those sorts of things, then we might get a, a long way. But to be honest, I don't mm. think they will. No. Well, um, it will be interesting to see what if, if anything comes out of that review. But I don't know, from your perspective, do you think that these reviews are kind of driven by lots of you know there's like league table wars about spinouts across the world, and often we see kind of U.S. universities kind of ranking higher perhaps than UK universities. Yeah. You know, you think the likes of Stanford, they got their kind of geographical proximity to Silicon Valley to kind of look on. Do you think it's fair to kind of that kind of rank elements, or do you think universities frankly don't really care where they rank? It's more just about oh no, they do care. Yeah, no, they absolutely do. They, they love competing against each other on these sorts of things. I think the reason that the Stanfords of this world do really well is because of their access to capital. Um, the, the the volumes of cash that are, are available in the United States compared to what we have in the UK. I mean, it's not to say that the UK system is is particularly poor. It's not, but there's it's just there's just so much more cash of, of there. It is much more of a market for capital and VC, um, and as a consequence, it's driven the prices up. I remember my fourth spin out. Uh, at uh, Oxford, I actually I actually did Oxford's first American spin-out, right? It was a spin-out in Silicon Valley. Um, it was called 6D.AI, 6Degrees.AI. It was a virtual reality um, mapping tool. And I could get, well, I got six times the valuation in Silicon Valley that I would have gone in the UK. Money is a driver for academics. You know, the, you, if I am working a 55 to 60 hour week, why am I going to do this? Well, it, this I have the potential to have a stake in a company which is already worth three million, rather than say three hundred thousand, as it might be over here. You're gonna you're gonna put more effort into it, aren't you? You just necessarily are going to put more effort into it, and to make sure that it works. And that's what you get over there. You get higher valuations. Mm. And so this argument about like the equity that um, the universities take in their spinouts, well. It doesn't really sort of stop a spin-out raising equity. There's no evidence to suggest that a spin-out way in which the universities take a higher percentage of equity stops fundraising or is it inhibits it the fundraising. What it does inhibit, I think, is the likelihood of a professor bothering to do a spin-out in the first place. So if mm. if you're if you're only going to get 25% of a spin-out company, 
and it's which is going to be quickly diluted down to 15 or 10 after a couple of investment rounds what's your motivation going to actually be i think it would i would from a personal perspective i would rather see uh, universities keeping their equity stakes low and there being more spin outs so if, if they if they keep these equity stakes low what are there other ways that they perhaps less dilutive or non-dilutive approaches they can have to returns is there ways to know increase fees consultancy arrangements or increasing the fees for i licensing ip is that a way to get those returns back into university to kind of you know do more research you know further charitable purposes etc or is is there another is there another way to do that i and so is, how do universities get their their money back so this is i think we all need to look at cambridge a little bit more because i don't think they make any money out of commercialization really i mean they'll make you know if you look at the accounts it's a little bit as it is at oxford you know it's just a you know couple of percent of the, the the turnover but you look at the west cambridge site in cambridge and all of those big buildings that they built there were the money was raised um f- through professors who had interacted with industry through their spin-out companies and through their commercialized uh, commercialization activities i think commercialization is a lost leader for universities to get build partnerships with industry where and that's where the universities can make their big money and I, and I think the more universities that treat commercialization like that as essentially a lost leader, I think the more successful they will be. I think the, I think the focus should be less on, on equity and income and consultancy fees and what, what slice mm. they can take of that and, and connecting their commercialization activities to their business engagement. That's really, really interesting, Mark. And you, you talked a bit earlier about kind of you know, funding benefits of being Silicon you know, being close to those VCs. Obviously, mm. there's, there's some... VCs in in the UK that kind of focus perhaps on university entrepreneurs. I think Halton Street Ventures is probably a good example. Do you think we need more funds that kind of focus on university spin-outs and they can do that? Then perhaps university can still keep their high levels of or their their relative levels of, of um, equity, but we get more VCs in there who are willing to kind of back those returns and you know have the impact at the same time. I think <laughs> I think there is where there is a big gap in. In the investment space in the UK, particularly, is at seed stage. There, there aren't OSI made a OSE as they're called now made a big uh, step change in the increase of the number of spin-outs that were invested in uh, Oxford. You can see there's there's a bump. You know, there's a massive acceleration in activity there. Um, and the more investors there are it, it, that that in, are in this space, it can only be a good thing. The, what I would say is that in order for it to be successful, it needs to be a market and it needs to be as free a market as possible. And, and so spin-outs are funded on their merits. Well, that's um, obviously we covered so much today, Mark, in our conversation. I'm sure we can be carrying on and speaking for hours and hours, especially on the kind of points about the kind of funding for, for social ventures and impact ventures. But I'm looking to bring our conversation to an end by asking quite a big question. Um, I'm interested to know what you think we can do to encourage more researchers to start companies that are moving the dial on a social and or environmental issue. I mean, it's, it's increasingly already, but there, there needs to be more value put on people who do research into these in, in these areas in the first place, right? So they get more research funding to look at these uh, uh, these areas, and more journals and more high impact journals by where this 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 work gets published. Um, I think the people who care about this sort of stuff they don't necessarily they, i've not met one yet who wants to just stop at the end of their research and that's it they don't want to do anything else and so giving them buying them the time in order to explore how they can push their ideas outside of the university is very important the, the more and more senior that you're getting in university the more uh, impact you can have just by your status but the more and more committees you have to sit on 
and being able to free up some of that time either by giving some of your responsibilities to more junior people in your in your department who could maybe deliver some of the lecture courses on your behalf or do some of the tutorials um, just little bits here and there just so that they have more time to push things yeah. out those those would be that would be my magic bullet they sound good to me and um thanks very much for today's conversation mark it's been really All good right. and i hope you have a good time in estonia when you when you when you uh, <laughs> enjoy you. that trip there <laughs> visit um <laughs> before we sign off is there anything you'd particularly like to mention or spotlight um well if you're looking to kickstart some innovation in your in, in any particular area in your university do get in touch um i've again i've got all the war wounds to say how you don't do it but also some sort of success stories <laughs> to say how you do um and likewise if you if there's something that you uh, you're in a big organisation and you try to do something new and you've got no idea to where to start. Those are the problems which I really love. And so if you want somebody to uh, approach it from a bit of a left field, let's have a conversation. It'd be great fun. Sounds good. And thanks so much for everyone to listening. Um, if you'd like Mark to help you make more of an impact, head over to markman.ee. If you'd like to hear from other impact-driven leaders, investors and entrepreneurs, subscribe to our feed to be notified of future conversations. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.